Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Minds on Mental Health podcast. My name is Andy Dean. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And today is part two of my conversation with Sarah Karstens. Sarah is also a licensed clinical social worker, as well as a licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor. She's also the addictions clinical director for outpatient services at Penn Medicine Princeton House Behavioral Health. Today, Sarah and I continue our conversation about the harm reduction treatment model, and we go over some myths associated with harm reduction. So I hope you guys enjoy the conversation and find out. But one of, one of the myths about harm reduction is that it's sort of seen as a model that, incorrectly so, seen as a model that can enable people to just and just sort of tells people, hey, do whatever you want. It's fine. That misconception is kind of out there. Right. Okay. Definitely. I, and I think, um, it's, it's kind of funny because I think one of the things that I believe makes abstinence only approaches so attractive is that there is this, um, it, there's this like level of comfort that it brings mm. and this, you know, perceived control that, all right, well, as a treatment provider, I have told, you know, you as my client that you're not allowed to use. And so if you do, you're going to be discharged. And this thought that like, because I said it, they're going to do it. Yeah. Um, when in actuality, people are going to do what they want to do anyway. Right. right? So, you know, coming from a harm reduction lens is acknowledging that people are going to make their own choices Mm -hmm. and you know rather than us kind of putting up these barriers and these walls and saying well this is what you have to do we're acknowledging hey you're gonna do what you want to do but let's talk about that so at least we're on the same page at least i know where you're at as your provider and then i can help you you know make decisions that are going to reduce the level of risk that are going to lead to you know you achieving your goals whatever those goals may be yeah. so it's not it's not so much permission to do what they want to do it's acknowledging people are going to do what they want to do we don't necessarily have any control over that but let's have a conversation about it. That's a great point. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking like, yes, as a treatment provider, that definitely gave me <laughs> some small amount of comfort in the past. When Absolutely. I was, when I was working with substance use with clients who use substances. Right. I mean, I think there's probably a fear there that, you know, you don't want to you don't want to seem like you're giving someone permission to do something that could potentially be harmful. Right. Absolutely. Right. But. As you said, at the end of the day, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. So, you know, it, it's more about, it seems like having a, a more realistic conversation about what the goals should be for treatment. Right. And it's, we are still, again, acknowledging as the provider, like, I would recommend against substance use, mm-hmm. right? Like we we can say that even in harm reduction, we're we're allowed to say what we want for people and you know what what it is that we would desire for them and recognizing that what I want doesn't necessarily have to match what you as the client wants in mm-hmm. order for you to remain in treatment. And right. we're going to look at making, you know, making the most of your goals and, and doing what we can with them in, you know, realistically within the time frame that we have, which at Princeton House is not a considerable amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because, spoiler alert, one of the first things you learn in counseling school is 
basically you want to meet the client where they're at. Right. Um, And you said this earlier, but you know, for so long when you were working with someone who had a substance use issue, it was more like, yeah, you can't use, well, they might not be coming to you with that goal in mind. So then you're, you're not meeting them where they're at. Um, Right. You know, maybe their goal is to drink considerably less or use considerably less than they're using um, or, used in a safer way than they were using before. But if they're coming to you and the first thing that you're sort of laying out on the table is like, hey, you can't use, period. Sort of by definition, you're not meeting them where they're at if that's not what they had in mind for a goal. Right. We're telling them what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, not offering them options of what what is their potential to do. Right. Um, Yeah. I guess I'm curious if there are any other myths about harm reduction that are kind of out there that we can talk about a little bit? I mean, I think, you know, again, I think the biggest ones um, really have to do with allowing people to, to sort of do what they want. I think there are, when we talk about harm reduction, we're also talking about um, a really, you know, wide range of, you know, opportunities for Mm -hmm. intervention. So everything from, a lot of the things that, you know, that Princeton House is, is certainly in support of and doing now, like providing Narcan to patients, medically assisted treatment falls under the, the harm reduction umbrella. Right. Um, but I also think things like like needle exchange and safe consumption sites also fall under there. And those those two in particular, when we're thinking about the spectrum of harm reduction interventions, I think definitely turn turn a lot of heads and and make people really think twice about harm reduction because those are like kind of uncomfortable things to think about and talk about, right? Like mm-hmm. providing providing people who are, you know, using IV heroin, for example, with a clean needle and, you know, how how can we possibly do that for people? And again, going back to what we were talking about before, people are doing it anyway. That's mm-hmm. the decision that they're making. But by providing clean syringes and things like that, we are essentially reducing some of the risks and, you know, potentially helping that person to avoid other communicable diseases and, you know, infections and things like that, that are going to then, you know, land them in the healthcare system. And then we're talking about, you know, increased price of of healthcare and and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, really thinking about and just recognizing that these things are happening in our communities right now as it is. And rather than looking at, it would be wonderful if we could, you know, eradicate addiction. That would be fantastic. I don't know that there would be anybody who'd be against that. And we tried that, right? We had a war on drugs. And what we've seen are consistent rises in the rates of substance use and substance use overdose deaths. So we have to look at switching our approach and we have to look at doing something different and not saying, okay, this is fine, let's do it, but acknowledging this is happening. What can we do to make sure that we are minimizing the risks for as many people as possible? Looking at, you know, the health of the community as being a priority and, Mm -hmm. you know, each and every member of that community as being a priority. So you were just talking a little bit about like needle exchange programs and safe using sites, even though we don't 
offer any of that at Princeton House, this is sort of something that falls under the harm reduction model umbrella. I guess I'm wondering if you can just expand a little bit on what might some goals be for someone who's coming into treatment using more of a harm reduction approach versus an abstinence-only based approach? Well, that's, that's a wonderful question because the opportunities are endless and the world is your oyster, uh, you know, when we're using harm reduction as the lens. So a person coming into treatment can really come into treatment knowing that what they want to work on is available to them. And it's not, you know, essentially excluding people from treatment because their goals are not what we would want for them. Right. So someone who is, is using substances can choose anything from, I want to completely discontinue use of all substances to, I want to look at decreasing my use. You know, maybe I want to decrease my use during the day, but maintain my marijuana use before bed because it helps me sleep. That's certainly an option. You know, again, looking at using in a way that is going to be safer. So again, talking about some of those interventions where we, you know, separate the risk from the use, drinking and driving, um, you know, being another example. But we're also really able to kind of help people approach some of the other things that really may be priorities for them. Many people coming into treatment, um, you know, oftentimes we'll see individuals who have had treatment before and the focus has been primarily for the substance use, but not for the trauma symptoms mm. that they've been experiencing for years um, or for the other, you know, the co-occurring mental health disorders. So, you know, we're also really wanting to help people kind of take a look at potentially some of the underlying reasons um, that they may have sought out the substances to begin with. So, you know, whether that is focusing on PTSD symptoms, um, looking at the depression, the anxiety, helping people, you know, take a look at and start to, you know, make headway in repairing relationships in their lives, mm -hmm. or just overall functioning, being able to, you know, to get out of bed and, you know, get through the day, make a meal for themselves, improve quality of life, improve relationships, um, improve ability to perform at school or at work. So we're talking about a whole host of opportunities for improvement, some of which may, you know, may not necessarily involve direct discussion about the substance use, mm. and yet areas which have very likely been impacted by the substance use. I guess for me, it sounds like in terms of harm reduction, really what we're talking about, if we're thinking about like goals for treatment is really reducing risk in any way that that could be possible when it comes to substance use, right? I mean, I think that's sort of the common denominator there when you're talking about sort of the different goals. It's just how can you reduce risk in terms of, you know, health risks, risk to your social life, risk to your risky behaviors that, that you might engage in when you're using uh, it's really just reducing risk versus not using substances at all. Correct. Absolutely. And, and again, the the range of individuals that that come into treatment um, is pretty expansive. And we have, you know, this spectrum of, you know, um, severity in terms of the substance use. So risk is going to look different for different people. Therefore, treatment and interventions need to look different 
for different people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and again, when we're not kind of pigeonholed into, well, this is the standard, this is the expectation that you need to meet. Um, you're either in or you're out, you know, and, and have this all or nothing approach, then we really open the door for so many more people to be able to come and seek treatment in a way that feels like a little bit more, a little bit more tolerable, if Mm -hmm. you will. Yeah, I, I can remember working with plenty of people who were alcoholics and would go to meetings regularly, et cetera, and they weren't using alcohol anymore, but they regularly smoked marijuana, right? Technically, those people aren't abstinent from substances, um, right. but you know they found that the risks associated with their marijuana use there was far less risk associated with their marijuana use than there was with their alcohol use, you know, probably for somewhat obvious reasons. So that's that's sort of a harm reduction approach versus saying you're going to come to treatment here you can't use we can't see you smoking marijuana at all you have to be completely done and again I, i'm not saying that there's we're not saying that there's not benefit to that um but for many of those people it's often a choice between like i'm either going to come to treatment and get some help for what i need help with and they're going to let me continue smoking or I'm not going to go to treatment at all because I'm not ready to stop my marijuana use. So again, you're sort of reducing that risk. Right. And I think it's, you know, it's important that we also, you know, at least highlight in the conversation that, you know, things are very different in terms of, um, you know, legalization at this point in time than they were many years ago. Right. So we, you know, we have, you know, currently coming into treatment, we have many more people that have, you know, medical marijuana cards. Um, That is something that, you know, for many people, it is used for, you know, legitimate medical purposes, you know, to help pain and all of those types of things. We're also looking at, you know, what does, you know, legalization of marijuana in the state of New Jersey mean for Mm -hmm. us and for our patients. So I think, it, it has to be a different conversation now than it was years ago because things are different now. Yeah. Again, there, there are many, many factors that need to be taken into consideration. And I think one of our jobs as treatment providers is to still provide education to people. Again, not saying we're going to kick you out if you continue to smoke marijuana, but I think it's also important that the information that we provide to our clients is more than... You you know, the likely anecdotal information that they kind of have. It's like, oh, well, I heard from my buddy that this happened, or, you know, I know that I know this about marijuana use or opiate use mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. this has happened to me or this has happened to several of my friends. We're also coming at it from the empirical evidence, the research, um, you know, the, the science behind what impact marijuana has on cognitive functioning among adolescents, all of those types of things. So, you know, we have a responsibility to provide that information to people and to still say, and do with this information what you will. We're not necessarily going to just stop treating you because this is the decision that you've made, provided you're, you know, not in danger of any significant medical complications. Some of the most dangerous, you know, the the most high risk individuals are those who are just coming off of a period of abstinence right. because it is that that point in time where you are much more likely to, you know, resume use as you had been using previously and your mm-hmm. body just cannot handle or tolerate that. Right. So, so, so just, while they're just, oh, sorry. no, no, it's okay. I just want to clarify um, that not all the time, but this is 
commonly seen with like opiate users, right? They go in, they get a detox. Maybe they were using 15 bags a day and then they get detoxed off of opiates. They go back out maybe a week after being detoxed and they use again and they start with 15 bags, which is what they were using before. And then they, they can overdose. Um, yes. Because the body's not used to, the body doesn't have any built up, uh, built up tolerance. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, I mean, we're not talking, this can happen probably with, with other substances, but I think it's most commonly seen in the opiate. opiate. I I think it's, I think it's one of the, um, the bigger dangers associated with opiate use for sure. Right. And so, you know, again, with, with harm reduction, the, the likelihood of continued use during treatment is certainly there. And yet, you know, what you see is people who are, you know, more likely to be to be candid with their treatment providers about what they're using. Um, you are likely to see individuals who are more engaged with treatment and mm-hmm. those treatment providers. And thus, you know, if a recommendation is made to um, for a higher level of care or something, those, you know, those recommendations are often heeded by individuals who are, you know, receiving treatment under a harm reduction approach. Mm-hmm. So in, in the long term, this, you know, it really is kind of you're playing the long game when you're looking at harm reduction, because you're recognizing that you're not going to get for the provider, kind of that instant gratification of, okay, you've got somebody who is now, you know, completely clean of all substances, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But rather, we're playing that long game and planting seeds, and certainly hoping that, you know, eventually, a decision will be for complete discontinuation. And yet, if it's not, you also have a place to come where you have people who are going to support you who are going to hear, you know, what it is that you want to work on, who are going to engage with you in, you know, a a way that is um, uh, respectful of the decisions that you make, the life that you're living, um, and the goals that you have for yourself. Mm -hmm. And again, you're, you're meeting the person where they're at, right? You're not saying, this is the goal I have for you. You're saying, what's your goal? Right. Uh, What's your goal and how can I help you reach that? That's it. I'll be honest. It's, you know, it's a little scary. Um, Mm -hmm. As, as a treatment provider to, you know, enter into this type of treatment, knowing that you are likely going to have people who you, you are, you're going to have people who are continuing to use substances. And I think when you come from, you know, a history of operating in a way that prohibits that, and that says you need to discontinue all of your substance use, or you can't, you know, participate in this treatment, um, you know, there, there's definitely a level of anxiety that comes along with that. And so, you know, for us, it really is kind of working through tolerating our own distress around the fact that, um, and, and again, the acceptance around the fact that we don't have that type of control over individuals, mm-hmm. but what we will have is a relationship which this person can use for his or her own personal growth, right? It's a relationship where we know that they can be honest with us. And while we may not like everything that we have to hear, at least we know what we have to work with.